0: All this season, we're taking a peek behind the curtain to explore and better understand how a variety of value chains work throughout the continent. And halfway through the season, a few themes are emerging. We've discussed topics like digital infrastructure and the decisions fintechs need to make about building out the full stack themselves or relying on third-party B2B companies to provide solutions at one level of the value chain. We've talked about the second-order effects of building infrastructure from an enablement perspective. In terms of unlocking latent demand or making it easier to conduct business across borders, and throughout the season and in past seasons of the show as well, we've talked about expansion, the difficulties of doing so in regulated sectors, and what it means to be a Pan African company. This October, the Flips B, Mike Shayo, Folowio, and I had the opportunity to sit down in Johannesburg with MFS Africa's founder and CEO Dario Kuju to record a conversation for a future episode of the Flip. And when all of these themes emerged in our conversation with DARE, we chose to make it a standalone episode. See, I think DARE is a really great entrepreneur to hear and learn from. And I promise I'm not just saying that because MFS Africa sponsors the show. Although a big thank you to MFS Africa, of course. But MFS Africa is a company that's been around for over 10 years now. Started by DARE in 2010 after his stint launching new mobile money markets with MTN. It was built to be the connective tissue making mobile money interoperability possible across MNOs and markets. Today, MFS Africa's API Hub connects over 330 million mobile wallets across over 30 African countries. And a few weeks ago, they announced their expansion to Nigeria through the acquisition of the agent network Baxi, which will see Baxi's 90,000 agents and their hundreds of thousands, if not millions of customers, better connected to the rest of the continent through the MFS Africa Hub as well. Simply put, there are few African entrepreneurs in technology we could speak to whose business has achieved this level of scale to date. And so in this episode, Shai and I get a masterclass in strategy. We talk with Dare about the degree of cross-border trade happening across the continent. We talk about the company's decision to focus on being a B2B infrastructure company. We talk about fundraising and sexiness and storytelling. And we get some perspective on what's happening today from the internet's nascent days in the 90s. So as MFS Africa this week announced their $100 million Series C, we are proud to share with you this conversation with its CEO, Dare Okuju. You're listening to The Flip, the podcast exploring more contextually relevant stories from entrepreneurs around Africa. So, the first thing that I want to talk to you about is Nigeria. Obviously, with the Baxi acquisition and with um, the announcement that you guys are going into Nigeria, the first thing that I was really intrigued by was this 330 million mobile wallets number doesn't even really include Nigeria. So can you just talk a little bit about this deal, about Nigeria, and then we're going to dive into the specifics from there.
1: Sure. So every year for the last 10 years, we had a Nigeria project. Normally it started on September. We discussed it a little bit. And by November, we agreed not to do it. <laughs> and that has been the story of the, of the past 10 years. And there were always the same reason not to do it. The first one that you don't go in Nigeria to try. You go to do, you know, you have to be ready for it. And the second one was that our normal or traditional path into a market was not there in Nigeria. And that would be a path where we would partner with mobile network led mobile money schemes that will give us easily 60, 70% of the market through a couple of deals and will immediately make the network more valuable for people in that country, being Nigeria, and become an attraction for existing members of our network. Now, in 2015 or 16, we entered an agreement with a few players in Nigeria, including Paga, who has been all these years, probably our main partner in Nigeria. But mobile money never really took off, as you all know. So even that those relationships that we had in Nigeria with mobile money players, turned out to be more of a banking relationship. It turns out to be, you know, as far as cross-border payment was concerned, it was to send money into bank account. And because it was that way, the outbound was never really there as well. So it was more one way, that direction. So that that's why it took us so long. And, you know, about two years ago, we decided that, look, we just, we have to go. So we have to just relook at how we get that done. And that meant deconstruct our assumptions about market entry, understanding better the lay of the land in Nigeria, and then decide the path from there. And the commonality we saw, you know, the common denominator for us was the agent network, which is still the foundation on which mobile money is thriving across sub-Saharan Africa. And it is, in our opinion, the foundation on which the fintech market in Nigeria eventually will get built. So We thought that would probably be the best place to enter because that's the closest to the asset, if you want. And hence, we start looking in that segment in particular. It helped that I knew uh, D and Baxi for for years. And so when the opportunity came, it made a good fit. Then we still have to do the deal, which I'm glad we got done.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So before we get into those particulars, it may be obvious to ask like why Nigeria and then why now for why Nigeria? But. Can you give a little bit of insight into your thought process of why Nigeria
1: Yeah. So why Nigeria is very simple. For me, it's like, you know, if you take the continent, usually people split it into four, right? Nigeria, Egypt, South Africa, and the rest. And the rest is actually the most complicated because it's like 50 countries, different currencies, different, but from a economical For market size point of view, you need almost all the rest to match the size of Nigeria. So you go back to fintech, at the core of fintech, there is an implicit assumption of scale, right? Which most African market will not give you. And we spoke about this before. Most of them are subscale. Nigeria is that one market where actually you don't need to go anywhere else. You could run a really successful and really big fintech business just being in Nigeria. That's why Nigeria is so important. And also, we have seen in so many other industries that, you know, and we, you know this from strategy, markets matter. Like, if someone were to dominate in a market like Nigeria, and we see this in telecommunication, for instance, where MTA in, from a second place in South Africa went on and dominating Nigeria, ended up dominating in Africa. Because if you dominated in the right market, you can have access to so much more resources to eventually dominate in all markets. So that dynamic is going to play out in fintech as well. And there is an, a movement to slowly erase borders, as we say. So you know, we know it's not just the African Continental Trade Agreement. It's just the people, it's cities. More and more, it's hard to tell who lives in Nairobi, who is from Kampala, who is in Accra. So there is already that convergence eventually of to, into kind of one market in Africa. and. For us, it's just not possible to not have Nigeria included into that. It just doesn't make sense, and it will weaken our our ambition and what we set out to do. So that's why Nigeria, and I still believe that more than ever, we are going to see models being experimented in Nigeria first, because what we're seeing right now is a concentration Of the fintech industry and fintech players in Nigeria, that is likely to make Nigeria a little bit of a center of excellence. And again, you you cannot afford not to be there. So that's why Nigeria, that's why now.
0: I'd imagine, so you talked about the Nigeria project like every year. So even still on the why now, was it specifically Baxi or was it like, it's getting too late? Like Nigeria fintech is getting even hotter than ever before. You know, you talked about market dominance. It's, it's a crowded market now. So
1: yeah, but I think, you know, if you measure it at the <laughs> at the yard of the last 12 months, maybe 24 months, it's crowded. If you take a 10-year perspective, I think we're getting started. And for us, yes, I mean, we, we have decided that we will be in Nigeria by the end of this year. And we had two approaches to it. We had inorganic and organic. So we actually went out and we had Fola Kemi, who is now our country director for Nigeria. We're putting a team in place. So for us, it's not like we absolutely had to to do an acquisition, to go into Nigeria, we were very happy to go organically as well. It's great that we actually have both now. So we have a team that we have been building ourselves and then we have the Baxi team that is joining. So both ended up working out.
2: I have this conversation a lot. Why Nigeria, why not Nigeria, why not Nigeria? And as you said, I think very perfectly put, you don't try Nigeria, right? You do it. And I guess it will be interesting to understand from your experience in other countries, how did that make you guys ready actually to do this, like from an expansion perspective, what are the kind of capabilities that you guys have built as a team?
1: Yeah, I think it starts with the, you know, the people you have. I mean, for instance, I've been able to spend probably half my time on this project this year. I couldn't do that two, three years ago. And that's kind of what it takes. I think, I think you have to, you know, if you cannot have your A team in Nigeria, you probably don't want to do it. Right. (laughs) So we couldn't afford, and and it's, it's a little bit of trade-off between marginal efforts, marginal results. So we started in the rest, and it was always going to make more immediate sense for us to add Burundi to our East Africa cluster, right? Because we have transaction going, it's a great cluster, it's immediate, you can see, to add DRC to that, to add Malawi in the southern toward places like Liberia, Sierra Leone, Gambia, that, you know, you if you just look at the macro, you're like, why, why you want to go into Gambia? Well, it makes sense if you have Senegal and if you have Sierra Leone and if you have the rest. So that has always been there, but we got to a point where we could afford two A-teams, if you see what I mean, that we could have an A-team that was still going after our expansion and our wiring up of the rest, while we can devote another A-team for the Nigeria entry and now... I'm glad we also acquired an A-team to actually run the Nigeria business. So it goes back to that. I mean, how much resources you have and what can you
2: spare? Mm. And in terms of expansion capability, do you have a team? Is it the same team that's going from place to place? Or how do you guys kind of, um, I guess, entrench that
1: capability in your team? So, I mean, you have to remember that our business starts as a cross-border business. So it's... We actually don't think about it as a special. Is what we do. So normally we don't we don't go too deep in the market, right? We will make sure that the market can connect to our network. So it's part of our mode of operation. Having said that, a couple of years ago, when we decided to also start investing on SMEs, that became a little bit different because, you know, that requires a little bit of local entrenchment and, and some activities. We started in the East where we had the Bionic team that, that was there, was established. We've been able to beef up that. Nigeria is actually the first one where we really thought about it as an entry because it has such a huge domestic component compared to the other market that we've done. But in general, we start the year with a plan of countries that we want the hub to touch and we have pretty tested ways of, you know, getting that done. It's a lot of business development, integration that usually happen mostly remotely. Some of them uh, we have to visit and spend some time, but it's 80% of the cases we can bring a country online without visiting. That was the case for for Sierra Leone this year, for Liberia last year. So that's one of the good thing about our model of cross-border payment. Very
2: cool. I don't want to take
0: I ask questions all the time. So now we never do an interview where you get to ask questions. It's it's so
2: much fun. Is this your life? Yeah. So kind of from a product perspective, just out of interest, you mentioned clusters. How do you guys think about that? Like from even because remittance is hard. It's a lot of um, flows in
1: in many directions. You know, I learn every day in this business because it's actually, we had so many surprises. We started thinking we're going after... $15 $15 billion intra-Africa remittance market that was being priced at 17, 20%. That was 2014, 15 when the hub started getting traction. What we found now is actually is the cross-border trade market that we are servicing. You know, 60% of the users in East Africa told us that they use the service for trade reasons, even if they're using the P2P that is offered by the M-Pesa in Kenya, MTN in Uganda, Orange in Burkina Faso, it's trade. So we have to rethink trade routes, right? And if you actually think trade routes, you see the corridors that are going to emerge. You understand that actually Malawi is not a net receiver, it's a net sender because it needs the port in Dar es Salaam and a lot of things needs to come from there, right? When you start looking at, you take a country like, uh, you know, Benin Republic, it's a net sender to Nigeria. If you take, uh, you know, places like Togo and Benin, there's so much trade between the two, that is so much bigger. If you believe the World Bank remittance numbers, we are doing something like 90% of that market. But if you add trade to it, yeah, now it looks more reasonable, yeah? So we were talking about cluster earlier because, that's actually what we're seeing. We're seeing that the flows follow traditional trade routes. You look around Cote d'Ivoire, there is a traditional trade route right, between, that goes all around you know, the Francophone West Africa, but also going to Guinea, going to Mauritania. So it's not looking at the borders. You will think, okay, no, these are Francophones with same currency, they will trade together. No. A lot of the traders in Cote d'Ivoire are from Mauritania. They are from Guinea-Conakry, and those are not in the XOF zone. So that's part of the things that we need to fix. I spoke about, you know, Mozambique, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe, and the DRC, you know, the Copper Belt. So we are seeing those natural trade clusters and trade routes in the transaction that we seeing, And that's what makes us so much more excited about the SMEs in the continent on the continent, because although the proposition... Or the most used proposition is in the form of a p two p originated from one of our mobile network partner on a phone somewhere terminating on the phone. We know the reason behind this transaction. is not migrant workers' remittance is trade. Mm, that's
2: fascinating. that's that's so interesting. And there's actually a question I was going to ask is like when you now have the rails, what do you build on top of it? but it's just like it's already it's already happening. It, it's like, exactly. Yeah. but
1: it's about making it a bit easier, right? because you will see, a user, from a consumer point of view, he looks like a power user because he's sending this thing every week mm. or sometimes twice a week, mm. right? But it's because he's limited to what a consumer can do. And if you offer him a better interface, if you offer him a better way to do this, you know he will continue to do it and he will do it a little bit better. So we see opportunities there to adapt at the user interface level, experience level, but also solution level, our proposition to SMEs, so we think that will continue. We will continue to see a lot of transaction, P2P transaction, for our partners across Africa. But we also think that more and more partners that will be able to to service SMEs will generate also more traffic, and this can come from banks. We're seeing more and more banks actually coming to our hub, not so much for the consumers, but for the SME proposition but other fintechs as well. We're seeing more and more, especially lending fintechs who are lending to SMEs coming onto the hub to allow those SMEs to make payment directly, to be able to buy in China or or buy in South Africa or pay into Kenya and so on and so forth. So that's kind of the next layer of use case for us
2: on the hub. Really, really cool. And I was trying to think of an example and the only one I can think of right now is PayPal, right? But PayPal started kind of P2P and then became almost the infrastructure for yeah. commerce kind of stuff. Is that where you see?
1: Without the consumer stuff. So, I mean, we are pretty clear. We don't want to be a consumer business. You know? And we want to focus really on large enterprises like the mobile networks, the banks, the money transfer organizations, global digital merchant that we can service, and small and medium businesses in Africa. So... We are pretty set on that. And uh, I like to think about it still as an infrastructure play, not so much. You can argue that PayPal has some, you know, there is a huge part of PayPal, which is infrastructure. But we like that space better. And we believe that if we get that right, it opens up so much more possibilities for other people who want to engage with the consumer to build on top of that. Yeah,
2: great. And and so um, in our world where, you know, we would like to play on one layer, but... um. It never looks like that. How do you, number one, keep the discipline? Because there's a lot of discipline to, to that mission. And then number two, not scare everybody who probably thinks about you as a competitor, but you'd like to think of you as a customer.
0: Yeah. And number three, are the collaborators in the ecosystem, are they all there, right? I think a lot of people get compelled to just say like, oh, I'm just going to build this myself because someone else isn't good enough.
1: Yes. So let me start with number three. We do get that a lot. And um, because we're kind of a bit patient, things tend to come back. And usually it's a sign of maturity of our counterparty when they understand, you know, the limit of their abilities, let me put it that way, or where they want to invest. I mean, take a normal money transfer company, you know, anyone, uh, you know, a digital one from the global north trying to send money into Africa right now. I think it's hard enough to just keep your app on the phone of the sender right now. If you're in London, I mean, everybody has two or three, right, comparing all the time. So keep your app there that they don't delete it. And make it the number one choice when they actually decide to send money. And if they do compare, decide to compare with your neighbor, with their other app, that you still win that business. I think that is incredibly hard. And it's great for the consumer. But it's incredibly hard. At the same time, you want to keep the VPN up with MTN Liberia. And they just changed the VPN parameters. <laughs> so, and after you fix that, they just change it again in Uganda and you want access to the right float and not overpay in Mozambique, where by the way is number 32 on the destination that you're servicing. So at the end, in the world, you know, we will see specialization and we believe that being able to integrate everything all the way from you know, have the best customer engagement on the app all the way to the best termination and smart routing at the end at the delivery, it's not just hard, but it's expensive, and expensive in money and expensive in time. So mature clients, mature partners recognize this, and we will have a much healthier relationship, multi-years, and we can actually plan things ahead. But it's sometimes hard to convince someone who just started off this, I mean, you know, it looks so simple. Of course, I can get an app and I can plug or fuse, I can connect everybody. And sometimes we just have to wait and, and let that let that play out. So. I think we, they, as the industry and the ecosystem mature, the role and the importance of what MFS Africa has to offer is becoming clearer. And also, so the quality of the engagement we have with the players, big or small, is also getting better because we're all getting more honest about what we can do and what we cannot do. How do we keep the discipline from, you know, focus really on the B2B and on the infrastructure? I guess having, you know, the wisdom that comes with being in the market for long. <laughs> because we have seen many, many oral stories. And we, and I always say, you know, we don't want to be a story. We want to build something that will last 100 years. So with that kind of perspective in mind, it's relatively easy. And we're pretty clear we've also, when we hire people, that we want to hire people who get excited about what we're building. It's probably not the most sexiest, you know. You it's it's probably one of the most complicated things to explain to your parents. Right. <laughs> what do you do at MFS Africa? You know, who is MFS Africa? It's not the easiest, you know, it's not, there's no app you can point to, there's no there's no tangible thing you can see. But what you find is people who are actually passionate about this space are really passionate about it and tend to be really, really good at it. And that helps us. So every now and then, you know, on the funding market, I guess we'll talk about that at some point. I guess a few years ago, it was much harder to make the case for infrastructure where what everybody was seeing was the consumer. But that is changing. I think we are also seeing more infrastructure investors, people who actually understand infrastructure coming into Africa. And so I'm finding it actually easier and easier to explain that we just play out in the back end. We are just pipes. We want the infrastructure.
2: Um, I was, I was going to go to sexiness.
1: Yeah, you go for it. Sexiness.
2: Sexiness? Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Probably to a much lesser extent, but you know it's something that I struggle with, for instance, just especially uh, maybe where you guys were a few years ago is where we are in that you know, we're um, kind of boring when you look at it, right? It's like, oh, find a plumber. But it's like, yeah, obviously I'm not that interested in if people get their plumbing. It's like, there's a infrastructure again that, we're, that we wanna build that powers small service business, right? And that's um, access to market just happens to be a very good acquisition channel. But what I found anyway, especially in this, in and probably, yeah, definitely um, less for me than for others, but there's a huge storytelling element to this game that we're in, right? That sits a lot in, um, and it's probably because people don't know what they don't know, and it's there's a herd that has to be kind of managed in a way. And then that that trickles down from your funding to your employees to even your customers sometimes that, you know, you, you have to almost... Um, and I'm stubborn, so I'm always just like, oh, guys, we're doing the work, so that's what counts. <laughs> they
1: will cope. Do the
2: work, <laughs> that's what matters. And I'm learning, I'm not there yet. Justin's always um, getting at me to be better, but I'm interested to kind of hear about your journey from doing the work and clearly being, if not the, somewhere near the kind of deepest thinkers, best probably numbers-wise as well in this game, in a space that has now become a lot of stories and a lot of branding and a lot of flash and longest as well. So, kind of watching that happen, you know, how, how have you guys um, felt about that, and then how have you also maneuvered yourself to not be like me and being stubborn about it?
1: <laughs> no, you you cannot be stubborn. Mm, You're gonna is. have to change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. He uh, he's
0: working. I'm You're working. changing.
1: So I tell you, the light went on for me somewhere around 2014. Up to that point, so I started first in 2010. So four years in. I always thought fundraising was some sort of episodical thing you do, like it's a project and then you finish the project and you move to the next project. And after a near-death experience in 2014, like, I mean, we, we were like two weeks from bankruptcy and somehow we came out of it. And I realized, actually, this is my job. I need to always be fundraising. It's a permanent thing. And when you think about it that way, Two things then happen for me. I just approach it as a long cycle sales. So I have my prospects and I'm just working towards converting. And I also factor in now the time, what it takes. I just realized that empirically, I never raise money from anybody I haven't known for 18 months. So I started thinking like, okay, if I need money in 18 months, If I need money now, I can only get it from someone I knew 18 months ago. So if I need money in 18 months, I need to build more. So I think part of the reason why entrepreneurship is so hard is that you cannot just do the work. You have to do the work and talk about the work. And you have to be able to persuade people to get behind you, from your employees, as you said, all the way to investors. Now, obviously, market goes through phases where, you know, Either the supply is too small or supply is too large. And some things are fashionable and some things are less fashionable. And you have to be able to read all these things. So the danger is to go with the wind. You know, the flavor of the moment, you lose yourself in that. And actually, I think that must be a pretty terrible experience personally and emotionally. But I think if you are able to set yourself the goals and then you see everything else as a tool. And remember that it's like any other B2B sales. Some guys needs to be convinced first to become your champion, and then he's gonna go and talk about your product, so your equity in this case. And he's gonna come back with more questions, and they're gonna be naysayers, and and you have to decide how much power he has to actually push this through. What can he help you? You know, what's your chances? So really, I really, really approach this just like any other B two B sales. So I, uh, my thing is like as a CEO. I mean, there are many jobs, right, in the company in in but as a CEO, you cannot not do fundraising. And sometimes it can be 100% of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I think it will never be less than 50%. And to keep in mind that success is to put more time between when you're talking and when you need the money. It gets really hard when you're talking now and you need the money now because you have to, now you are ignoring the conversion that needs to happen. And you try and force your way through it. Mm -hmm. It can happen, but it's probably not this market. It's not mature enough. So the longer you have, so now if you're talking to someone and you need money in a year, you got time to show proof, to keep their going, to tell the story many times. They never get it the first time. They can know it as much as you want. You know, there's always few things that, and then they will send you another email and you realize that, Jesus, they did not get anything about what I talk about. So you're going to have to go through those cycles. And if those things need to happen in six weeks, it is incredibly hard. It is now if you find yourself there well find a way but if you find your way out of that just think of the next one like give yourself 12 months if you can just stay in the market even if you're not raising just talk engage the thing is you have to be a bit of a preacher to so keep preaching yeah about your business mm-hmm. that's it mm. and in the context of and you
2: mentioned, I, I like what you said about the wins because that's the thing, right? It's like, yes. you don't want to follow every win, but some wins are your wins. Oh, 100%. Right? And it's <laughs> and the win. You, <laughs> you, know, double you have to down. catch it,
1: right? Mm. Yeah. And right now, I mean, look, to, you look now, there's a lot of money in the system globally. Some of that is finding its way into Africa, much more than we ever had. Who will it go to? Put yourself in the shoes of the guy sitting in the US or in London or in Singapore to buy looking at this internet is the first place that will start even if someone tells you about your you know this great business i will go on the internet so are you on the internet and what are people telling about you on the internet so it's not you know, i used to be one of those cynical i'm like you know i need 2000 people to know about me that's it i used to literally answer that to people tell me <laughs> you need to do i'm like I need two thousand people to know about me. I can go and meet each of them. <laughs> and I have, I mean, I spent a lot of time traveling across and meeting people in person. But you get to a point that does not help you for the guy who's trying to find you on the internet. And that guy is your first champion you know if you don't pass that guy, there's maybe one hundred million dollars you don't have access to, and now you're fighting for ten million here in Nairobi. So it just I think we have to get it. It's part of the job, you know you if you can't do it, well, get someone who can do it. And as a team, you need to be able to do it. We knew we recognized that at least someone needs to be doing this. I mean we we need to be out there and so on. and if you your ambition is to build something that requires venture money. You have no choice.
0: I'm curious to know if you have a perspective on or a point of view on, you just mentioned like obviously a lot more money in the ecosystem than ever before. I sort of wonder to what extent, I think some people are getting uncomfortable with like valuations, especially at the earliest stages. I don't know that that matters. I wonder to what extent the investors have caught up on the ecosystem or the ecosystem has really developed a lot. But I'm curious to know, considering that you're always fundraising now, if you have a perspective on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, for sure the ecosystem has matured and things got better. And it's a bit of a cycle, right? So the better it gets, the more money comes in. The more money comes in, the better it gets, right? So, and just take three layers take quality of people. I mean, we now have multiplied probably by 10, 20 the number of product managers, tech product managers that we had on the continent, you know, five years ago. And that happened through funding to hire and employ these people, give them the experience. And as they get better, they will also do better businesses. They will be able to attract more capital and then you get that cycle. And I'm just taking product manager as an example, but you can look this for, you know, chief commercial officers, CTOs and so on. So overall, even if people are moving, businesses are getting created and dying and so on, the ecosystem just from Talent and competences point of view, is growing a lot, and that's good. And the more money comes in, the better, and then the better it will attract more money. Is valuation a problem? Well, it will always be for some people. But for me, no, because I believe on the discount on the future. I believe, obviously, anybody who's playing in this space, I hope is prepared to lose their money. <laughs> so it's not so much, it's actually... I mean, some of the valuations that we are still talking about, I still see is like, it's all or nothing. I mean, it's not like you're going to get some of your money back. I mean, it's, it's most of them is all or nothing. So when it's all or nothing really, does it really matter if it's, 10 million or fifty million, It doesn't, I mean, of course, don't get me wrong, it's all my money, so I can talk like <laughs> this.
0: <laughs> but are you answering this question as a, an investor as well? Because you have this valuation conversation on the other side of the table too. Yeah,
1: that's true, that's true. That's a good question. So no, I, I was not, I was answering it more as someone who's deeply vested in what tech can do for Africa and what tech entrepreneurs can do for Africa. And the more we have, the better. From an investor point of view, obviously, we are very different type of investor, right? We're primarily investing for MFS Africa. So we will look at every deal from that perspective and there will be there will be a commercial angle which will be valuable for us that let me take an example, Nomida, which we invested in earlier this year as a digital lending business for small and medium businesses in Uganda. Our biggest joy, my biggest joy is how, much Numida has grown. And the growth of Numida means processing transaction on MFS Africa Hub. So the bigger they get, the more transaction they process on our hub. And that's already giving me so much joy. Now, if we can help them as a team that is trying to solve a problem that we believe is important, by either catalyzed around, you know, provide the capital, provide some of the thing. It's great. And because it's also we're coming from being an operator, I think our valuation discussions are a little bit healthier because we come from that point of view. We are not faking it, you know. It's, it's not, we don't need to go too much around the push. And if we cannot afford what the entrepreneur is asking for, we will also be very quick. We don't do long deals in that way. So overall, even with my investor occasional investor, hat on, I still believe that the debate cannot be about valuation. It's way too early. We are talking about so little amount of money that the argument cannot be about valuation. Sometimes it's more about ego than about valuation.
0: Do you have an expectation? I mean, we talked about this over a year ago now, right? FinTech consolidation, you guys acquired Bionic. A year later, you guys have acquired Baxi. But we're still, we're not like... We're seeing more, but not a lot of M&A. And, and I'm also convinced that that's how ecosystems grow the most is not by, right? We talked about what a typical exit path would be and people are looking at corporates or overseas or whatever, but do you have an expectation? Like, are you saying to the, your fellow growth stage founders, like, guys, please, can you also do this because it's important? Or do you have an expectation that will increase?
1: I think it will increase for sure. And, uh, you know, th- there is part of it that you cannot program, which is the chemistry between the teams. Right. So, and you cannot, and we are still at a stage where it's impossible to do this acquisition where teams will walk away. So we are still at the phase where these mergers, this acquisition requires teams to find chemistry, to find the common ground trust to make these deals. I think for me, that's the biggest impediment. I don't think anybody rationally will argue against it. But how do you actually orchestrate this, this chemistry? It's actually quite difficult, especially in the world where for 18 months, we couldn't travel around. We couldn't bump into each other in lounges and in airport and get stuck together for six hours on a plane and get to talk. So I think that's what is holding it back. I don't think it's the logic of the idea. It just, we are not at a stage where someone can just buy and then you walk away. It's still like, okay, let's work together. And, you know, it's
0: like you're hiring a team of 200 people in one go. It's not, you can't just program that. I wanna switch gears and ask about, I wanna talk a little bit about, it's kind of in the context of unsexiness, but it is regulation, right? So your motto is making borders matter less. And and I'm on this personal thing right now, where, Shai was laughing because he knows, where I I just became convinced that all of the stuff that we're talking about is sort of Band-Aid approach unless we can figure out, we, unless, whoever, right, the regulators can figure out how regulatory harmonization can exist, right? And just talking to a lot of people who are navigating regulation as financial service entities, it's just so onerous. And you guys are in 30 plus markets, so I'm sure you're well aware. And I'm also stuck on this idea of like, let's just do the most drastic things. And are, are, we, are we not talking enough about like how burdensome and how important it is to figure out how to make regulation and expansion easier? Or is that not entrepreneurs' roles? Is it not feasible? Oh, it is, it is our role. Yeah. Look,
1: I think it's, sometimes you look how far we've come. So, you know, until MFS Africa did it, you couldn't pick up your phone in Rwanda and send money to Uganda. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't pick up your phone from Cote d'Ivoire and send money to Benin. Then it happened. And now it happened in like 30 something countries. I mean, if you wake someone up (laughs) from like the eighties, they will tell you we'll never get there, here we are. So that gives me hope that actually something is moving. But I absolutely agree with you that, you know, the, the scale of the change that we need is not matched by the progress we are making. It just, it feels so slow. But I also believe that there is always a tipping point. I think Nigeria again, South Africa probably hold the key in Sub-Saharan Africa, and to lesser extent, a place like Ghana. I think if one or all these three countries, and let's take Ghana to start with, Ghana is this country bordered by Francophone countries. It's, it's this one, not TFA country. You know, it has Cote d'Ivoire, Burkina Faso, Togo. You trade with your neighbors, whether you like it or not. I know that the flight, the most popular flight is the Accra to Lagos. But if you go to the border at Aflao, you realize that people actually trade with their neighbors, right? Same with the cacao, you know, into Kodiwa. The truth is, we talk about regulation, but it's lack of trust. The Ghana government does not trust the CFA countries to hold CFA. Because all we're talking about here, and I'm talking about the cross-border payments in particular, is why can't I just settle those two together? Why can't I pick up my phone in Ghana? and make a payment to Togo the same way I can do Togo to Benin. And the truth is that to settle this transaction right now, I probably need to go through dollars. Because it's not like I can give the CFA to the Bank of Ghana and they will hold it, or I can give the Ghana CD to Beseao and they will hold it. So we are there because we actually don't trust each other. The states don't trust each other. They don't trust the governance of each other. They don't trust the currency of each other. I have some hope around the African continental trade, and especially the work they're doing around PAPS, which on paper is supposed to solve this, is supposed to create this framework where actually the central banks, via African Bank, if I understand it correctly, will hold this currency, which will make it possible to cross. If that happens, actually we'll see a huge acceleration in cross-border trade and payment and fintech like ours, you know, our growth will be unleashed, but will that happen? Can I put a probability on it? I don't know. And what gives me hope, but also makes me a little bit skeptical is actually, it usually boils down to the leadership of few people and their willingness to take on the system. I hope we have those people. And I hope we have the attention of those people. But if we don't, yeah, 20 years from now, we could still be talking about this, which will be sad.
0: To be honest, I don't know if those people listen to the flip. <laughs> <laughs> they should. <laughs> they should. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they should. Because <laughs> so, so, then on the other side of the spectrum, then I also say like, you know, the cynic in me says, well, it's not going to happen. Or even if it's if it might happen in 10 years or whatever, like crypto now, people are doing CBDCs and even just, you know, stable coins that are making it interoperable across more markets. Like, I guess on one hand, I'm saying like, I'm learning and realizing that technology cannot solve a lot of the problems. We're doing a logistics episode on infrastructure and people just need to build roads and ports and technology is not going to solve that. But fintech, right? So is it rational to maybe say like, and I don't believe like crypto, you know, disrupting the regulators, but you know, that we should skip in the context of leapfrogging, right? Like, let's just skip this stuff and just go to... Crypto To Stable coins. Yeah,
1: yeah. I don't know if it will be stable coin, but I was lucky enough. I kind of grew up in the internet times, right? So I was at university and I can tell you we were having the same debates like about e commerce. <laughs> the laws did not allow for e commerce, right? And like, okay, where are we gonna pay the tax? Who's the protection of the consumer? And And when you think about it back then, you put yourself back 95, 96, 97, it looks so big, it's so complicated. Here we are, we're just doing it. And sometimes despite governments, sometimes with the help of government, it depends which government. I think this, it will play out the same way. The trajectory is forward. You take the average person in Africa right now in any of the main cities, Kampala, Lusaka, Dakar and so on and so forth. I can tell you they don't feel constrained by the borders around them. The way they talk, the way they dress, the things they watch, what they wanna do with their life. I don't think any government can tell them how constrained they are with their money, even if they wanted to. Now, if you take the next 12 months, is something gonna change? Probably not because you know the forces are slower. But if you take a 10 years perspective, I feel in my bones that people will be able to transact without limitation. Now, this will be sometimes with the support of some government. Sometimes it will be against some government. But it's just a sense of history. It's just what people want. And nobody has been able to counter what people want. There will always be a tipping point where things will happen. And my hope, again, when I look at Africa, again, you know, we don't do this technology for technology. For me, ultimately, we want to create prosperity. We want to, life to be better. And I think we have an opportunity for this generation in front of us, to really flip the table, I mean, literally, is to literally rethink about what is the market for an SME in Benin. It cannot be Benin. And if we cannot transact across border, it will be limited to Benin. And because the guy who is in Benin and starting this business now have seen enough of the world, is aware of other markets beyond Benin, you cannot keep him from selling to Benin. So that's where I don't know how it's going to play out. I don't know which role MFS Africa will play in, which regulator. But when you and I sit again here 20 years from now, it will be there. People will be able to transact without limitations.
0: Surely you'll have a bigger office
1: by the way. I hope so. On a beach. On will beach. the floor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, overlooking the ocean.
0: <laughs> that's it for this week's episode of The Flip. Next week, we're back to our regular narrative episodes, but until then, you can get more of your fix of The Flip by following us on social media at The where we share more insights and clips from the entrepreneurs featured in this show. We also publish a weekly newsletter every Sunday called The Flip Notes, which you can subscribe to on our website, theflip.africa. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you next week.